yourself been so lonesome chasing that morning chill oh little red bird open your mouth and say been so lonesome i just about flown away so long now i've been out in the rain and snow but winter's coming and welcome to the How I Healed podcast. I am joined today by my co-host, Mary Lou Singleton, who is a family nurse practitioner, herbalist, and apprentice-trained home birth midwife. She has been caring for the health of New Mexican families for over 25 years. Mary Lou believes all healthcare modalities, from allopathic medicine to energy work and everything in between, have healing potential. That healing is always an individual journey to be supported by community, and that when it comes to healing, effectiveness is the measure of the truth. She is a critic of the pharmaceutical industry and the mainstream medical industry, which promotes drug dependence and chronic disease maintenance rather than healing. She believes healing is always possible and co-created the How I Healed podcast to share stories of healing, hope, and recovery. Thanks, Jocelyn. I'm Mary Lou, and I'm here with my lovely co-host, Jocelyn McDonald, who is an artist and storyteller. She is enlivened by the infinite potential of humans to heal and helps others walk this path through her art and music. Her healing practice focuses on making and finding meaning out of the crises and major choice points of our lives. She offers one-on-one support through coaching and archetypical astrology and tarot. She specializes in assisting with psychedelic integration and pharmaceutical cessation. Hello, and welcome back to How I Healed podcast. On today's podcast, I will be speaking with my co-host, Mary Lou Singleton, about her healing journey. On the last episode of How I Healed, you heard from me, you heard about my healing journey, and today we're diving in with Mary Lou. Before we get started, I do want to take a moment to say thank you to everybody who has tuned in so far. The feedback has been incredible to receive. It has been such a joy to start this project. And Mary Lou, doesn't it just feel so aligned? Yes, yes. I'm really (laughs) excited that we're doing this, Jocelyn. I think the time is right for getting stories of healing out. Mm Yes. And so with that said, if you have a story of healing, please get in touch with us at howihealedpodcast at gmail.com to link up with us. You can also reach us on Twitter or Instagram and our handles are in the show notes for that. So without further ado, Mary Lou, are you ready? I am ready. ready to go deep. Okay. So, you know, I figure as a lifelong healer of others, I'm sure you have many incredible stories of healing, but today we're getting personal. So what, what are we talking about here? My, my whole life is a healing journey, right? So, I figure. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm really narrowing it down. <laughs> and, um, you know, we're never done, right? There's always something arising requiring us to, to, um, get into better balance. I I sat with it. And for this episode, I really wanted to talk about asthma and how I healed from asthma, because I think that's a a very common chronic condition that a lot of people identify with and, and think they cannot heal from. And I am someone who was told I had asthma, believed I had asthma for a really long time, and I no longer have asthma or symptoms of asthma. 
Yeah. And as we spoke about in our very first episode, you know, once you get diagnosed with a chronic condition, you are written down in, in your medical records as an asthmatic forever. Mm-hmm. And right, uh, right. the absence of yeah. symptoms is irrelevant to the medical profession. So when did your system, your symptoms first begin to manifest? I had a lot of respiratory illnesses as a child. You know, I, I came into this world with a lot of grief. Um, Mm -hmm. My mother's mother died a year and a day before I was born. So she died on Christmas in 1968. I was born the day after Christmas, 1969. So I gestated in my mother's grief. That was my prenatal time. And for anyone familiar with Chinese medicine, the the lungs are the site of the seat of grief. Uh, in in that paradigm of healing, every organ has an emotion associated with it. Or if it's not unsurprising that that I had weak lungs as a child, you know that was and that's what I was always told. Like, oh, she has weak lungs. She has weak lungs. You were told that by doctors. No, I saw that by my family because I would get respiratory illnesses really frequently. And Mm -hmm. some of my first experiences that I remember as a child were being sick, having a hard time breathing, and my mother making a a tent for me. She would call it an oxygen tent for me, but there was no oxygen involved. My, My mother was a nurse. And she was good at tending to me. And she was also really into Western medicine and and often had me on drugs, which was the way she knew how to take care of me. But I'd be very, very sick, coughing a lot, having a hard time breathing as a little child. And my mom would hang sheets from my canopy bed, put two vaporizers in there, put Vicks in the vaporizers, put Vicks vapor rub all over me. And, and I felt safe. My, I have to say, you know, my mom was never freaking out. She was like, okay, we know how to deal with this. Well, I never felt unsafe. I never felt like anybody thought I was going to die because I couldn't breathe very well, but I did get a lot of attention from my mother when I was sick. And Ah. my mother had three children in three years. I was the middle of those. Uh, We were not particularly bonded. And I think that that got imprinted in me as a child that you get love and affection and devotion from your mother when you can't breathe very well. Wow. That is deep. And it makes so much sense. So yeah, it does make sense. Right. And then the first time I heard the word asthma, I think it was eight or nine. It was Halloween. And I had, um, we were out trick-or-treating and I had this really crazy um, plastic mask. I think it was a ghost mask, but it was, this is the seventies. Um, it was some like horrible off-gassing plastic. It was over my face. And we just made it to the very first house and I could not breathe. Like I was wheezing. I couldn't breathe. It was cold out, but it was from the the um, gases coming off that mask. Cause I just remember the smell of it was, I felt, it felt like I was breathing in poison and I couldn't breathe. And we were only one house in, in the neighborhood. So my dad like left my brother and sister at the neighbors who we knew and took me back home and was like, oh, she's having a hard time breathing. And my mom said the word asthma for the first time. So I think I was, I was eight, it was like somewhere between seven and 10, but I think I was on the young end of that. And that's where asthma as a uh, word and identity became part of my life. And back then in the seventies, you know, there weren't, there was like the primatine mist inhaler. I don't remember going to the doctor for my asthma except to get steroids. My, my mom would give me steroid pills and that, you know, it's continued through my childhood. And then I, I, like a lot of people do, I also had eczema, like really severe eczema at the time, which those are paired conditions and are and, they? 
in allopathic medicine, we call them atopic conditions. So it's uh, A-T-O-P-Y. You're an atopic child. If you asthma, hay fever, and eczema are the, the atopic triad is how it's called. So I had the atopic triad. I was, I was had very bad seasonal allergies. I had lots of eczema and I had asthma. Uh, that was my belief about myself. Wow. Um, okay. So since you have become a medical professional, have you discovered any stronger link between these atopic afflictions? Like why they would always manifest together? Is there a pattern in the literature or in your own practice? It's a, a pattern of overreaction in the immune system mm-hmm. with all of those, which we talked about a little bit yeah. in this episode of just, you know, I think of that of how not feeling safe in this world, identifying things that aren't a threat as a threat. And I, I mean, anyone who's, who's spent a lot of time with me, I mean, I would, would agree that I'm, I'm a um, somewhat overreactive person. Like that's kind of my baseline. The joke in my family is um, my MO is freak out first, investigate later. So I'm, I'm working on that. I'm obviously not healed from that yet, but I would like to heal that, <laughs> that, that was being reflected in my immune system. Of, Interesting. Oh, you know, here's something coming in. Let's overreact. Yeah. You know, the atopic conditions, they're considered hereditary. I grew up in a family where people just were like, oh, we all have allergies. We all, we all have asthma. We all have not so much asthma. We all have um, hay fever and eczema. So that was the story in my mom's family that we were all allergic people. Yeah. So that was my childhood. Lots of colds that turned into what used to be called chest colds. Lots of wheezing, lots of coughing, lots of getting love and affection and devotion from my mom when I couldn't breathe well. I'm, I'm, I'm immediately reminded of the German new medicine paradigm, hmm. which is that allergies are expressions of a, of a track. And so the reason that you you continually get the same allergies over and over is they share a, you know, the trigger is shared in common and you essentially express this every time you have the same trigger. And so as you're describing, you know, you can get love from your mother when you express this very specific thing. It just seems so obvious that your very intelligent healing body, your wise body was like, yeah, of course, this is Mm -hmm. how we get the love that we need. Right. Right. I'm the middle child of uh-huh. three children who were um, all basically the same age. Like we're all a year apart. My birth was not great for me or my mother. Mm. And my, my mom would always describe my birth as she wanted to have a natural birth. She wasn't allowed. She was given general anesthesia against her will, even though she was, her labor was progressing really quickly and that I was born under the effects of the anesthesia and needed to be resuscitated. So my very first breath in this world was not easy. Like I had a forced breath. I was born not not having a breathing, having a suppressed breathing reflex by um, major anesthetic drugs. And then I was taken to the nursery and I was again, born the day after Christmas. They were very short staffed. And my mom would always tell this story like wistfully with like this sadness that she was to say, oh, I didn't see you for three days. It took three days for them to bring you to me. And not because I was sick, but because I kept forgetting. And so I was just in a little plastic box, like by myself, having, you know, bottles propped probably for the first three days of my life. So I came in unconscious, like knocked out. I had to be 
assisted in breathing. I was going to say forced to breathe, you know, but it was, uh, yeah, I, I did not have easy first breaths. And then I spent the first three days of my life away from my mother in a plastic box in a nursery. And so that was the template of my relationship with my mother. We never bonded. We didn't bond. Wow. Um, again, it's the late sixties. Women were being told breastfeeding was bad for babies. Like that, that, that particular hoodwinking is so upsetting to me that uh, women were actually told breast milk was, was less than ideal for their babies. It wasn't good. We have this space age new invention called formula, this very scientific, it's a formula it's, it's standardized. It's, it's a scientific formula. It's not like some mysterious secretion of women that we have no idea what's going on there. This is scientific. So my mom did not breastfeed me at all. And that was another missed bonding opportunity for us. And then she had a one-year-old at home. You know, I, like I was her second baby at the same time. And then she had my brother just a year later. So we didn't we weren't close. My mother and I were not close. And again, the old, like most of my memories of my mother really loving and, and caring for me individually were around times I was sick. Wow. And I think that that's a common template for many people with um, chronic illness, that, that there's a secondary gain to expressing illness. Attention being primary. Yeah. Um, getting the, the love and attention that you need. And I also feel like there's a lot of boundary setting in chronic illness because you have an excuse to say what your needs are in a, if you are in a family constellation where expressing your needs is difficult because they will not be met or they'll be met with suspicion or, you know, you, you don't deserve that, or you haven't earned that, then it's a great, way to really double down and say, nope, I need this. This is exactly like the amount of attention that I'm going to get. Yeah. Right. Right. So that was my childhood through, through puberty. I, I had, I was covered in eczema. I had frequent respiratory infections that presented with a lot of wheezing. I had some wheezing with exercise, but I don't remember that being such an issue. I remember not being able to keep up with other kids quite as well, like feeling I had like lower lung capacity, but there was less of this concept of exercise induced asthma back then. It was mostly- I was going to ask, were you athletic at all? No, I wasn't really athletic. Mm-hmm. I was a, I was a thinker. I was an intellectual. I was kind of <laughs> tracked that way. No, I wasn't very athletic, but we played a lot outside. Like there wasn't, you know, we run around and did a lot of like walking and hiking, but I was never a runner. I never, I could never run well. Um, I just would feel very short of breath pretty quickly into it. So, um, that the times were different and how that was treated. And then when I went through puberty, like many cases, it went into remission. Like I didn't, in my adolescence, I rarely had, um, bad respiratory illnesses. My eczema was completely manageable. I had to have like a couple of patches. I wasn't covered in it anymore. And then I started smoking. (laughs) Oh my God. I can't imagine you as a smoker, Mary Lou. I loved smoking. I was a big time cigarette smoker. Wow. Yeah. I was really into it. And um, you're a baddie. (laughs) All the cool kids were doing it, Jocelyn. Oh, I know. I started (laughs) when I was 16. Right. And, and again, this was like the eighties, like you could smoke in the grocery store. Like you could, you could smoke. There was a smoking section on the airplane. Like there was a smoking and non-smoking section in restaurants. Like it was ridiculous. You could smoke anywhere. We pretended that 
you could smoke on the airplane and it would stay in the smoking section. <laughs> yeah. So the eighties, like there was much less stigma. Cigarettes were cheap. You could get them in a machine. You didn't even need a, an ID, like a dollar a pack and you'd just, you know, get them at the, at the machine. And, uh, and it wasn't too hard to get fake IDs back then. Things were really different. So I, yeah, I became a smoker at 16 and I smoked, like I really, really smoked. I, feel like tobacco got me through some really hard times and, and (laughs) bringing us back to the grief. Right. 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 Exactly. Because at the same time, my mother had been diagnosed with, with cancer. She had both a melanoma and she had colon cancer and she had metastatic colon cancer and possibly metastatic melanoma. And I, you know, I just was so young. I don't even realize that. I don't even remember what kind of cancer she had, but she had cancer all through her body. And those were the two places that they said it had started from. And so my mom, who I didn't get along with because we'd never bonded and we fought constantly is now dying of cancer. And I don't know how to process that because we fight all the time and we don't ever have a good time together. And I'm completely devastated that she's dying. And the cigarettes became a way of self-medicating during that incredible time for me. Um, thankfully I was a really motivated kid and I was a really academically talented kid. And I had known from the time I was really little that my brain was my ticket out of town and that I, I was really focused on getting good grades and getting, getting into a good school and getting the hell out of Dodge, you know, and getting, getting away from the little town I was raised in. So I didn't become an alcoholic. I didn't, I didn't do hard drugs. Probably I'm also because I'm an anxious person. Like I, I was afraid to do hard drugs. You know, <laughs> like that seems scary to me. Like, oh, I don't know, I might die if I do that. So, my addiction kind of stayed at um, at tobacco, and yeah, so I started smoking a lot, and then my lungs weren't doing so well anymore, <laughs> and I got re-diagnosed with asthma. I said, oh, it came back because I was smoking. I was smoking a lot, and I went to college, which was great. My mom is dying. I go to college across the country. I'm at this like great liberal arts college. It's late eighties. Like you can do anything. Like it's, uh, there's so much freedom generation X sweet spot of, of freedom, you know, and I loved college and I was a chain smoker all through college. And I really got sick a lot. I just had a lot of respiratory illnesses at that point. I had an inhaler. I sometimes had oral albuterol pills. They were giving those back then that stuff. Like if you're into speed, that stuff was it's like a steroid no it's a stimulant it's what's in in the stimulant puffer yeah like I could run when I took out (laughs) I I could run like way beyond my um my fitness level focus all of that so I was in and out of respiratory things in college and then at um when I was 21 my mom let me know like she was going into hospice and I was just like I didn't know what to do with it nobody was really processing it with me. Like I, I, I didn't really have anyone to talk to. I um, didn't really understand all these feelings I was having. Cause I still, again, I had a really hard relationship with my mom. Like we fought, we, we couldn't, we couldn't hang out for like 15 minutes without fighting. Like we just really did not get along and she's dying. So in my junior year of college, when I was 20, I dropped out of college for a semester to go home and, and be with my mom during hospice and do some of her hospice care. And that was a big part of my healing. Like that Mm. was, yeah, that was really 
incredible. I still think, wow, that I'm so glad I had that gift to have that time with her. My mom was a nurse. She had been part of the hospice movement. Her best friend was a pioneer in hospice. My mom's sisters were all nurses and nuns. And so the, like she had all of these women really providing excellent hospice care. You know, my aunts would come and just be with us. My, her best friend, Dorothy stopped. She was just, I was an angel and she was my mom's best friend who was also a nurse and just set us up. And I had that time with my mom for where for, I think I'm going to start crying, but um, for the first time in my life, I felt unconditional love with my mom. And, and it was so, so good to get that, you know, that we could heal our relationship and that we, we weren't fighting and we were just present. And I got that bonding with her that I hadn't gotten when I was born that, you know, the baby's born and, and she's perfect. And you love her so, 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 so much where my mom and I got really ripped off at our birth. Like we, it was disorienting for both of us. It, it was considered normal back then. So no one addressed like the level of trauma of not seeing your baby for three days and then just being right. a baby like that's normal. And she didn't like feel connected to me, you know, she didn't feel connected to me at all. And I think just her overwhelm and confusion and then having another baby, like, you know, having a one-year-old and a newborn, not having time to just be present with me and bond and skin to skin. Like she was just crazy busy with her, her other baby. And, um, and then having another baby the next year. So we just had, it was the first time we bonded on that just deep, unconditional level. And um, I am so grateful for it. And then, you know, I spent all that time with her. We had that uh, last Christmas. And then this, like the hardest thing I've ever been through happened where I was in the kitchen, my mom's dying. Like maybe it's going to be tomorrow. Maybe it's going to be a while from now, but it's like, she's on the threshold. She's on, you know, she, it's up to her and when she's going to let go, but she's dying. She's actively dying. And I'm there at home and I'm in the kitchen and Dorothy Staub, my mom's best friend came into the kitchen and said, I have to tell you something really difficult. And I was like, well, what? Like, I know my mom's dying. Like, what is it? What like, more? What is it? like, you know, what's going to be? And she said, um, it's really important to your mom that all her kids are on track. She can't let go because she's so worried about you because uh. you dropped out of school. And, oh. and she said, you, you need to go back to school so your mom can die. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And it was, um, yeah. And I knew, I knew she was right. I know I wouldn't have gone back to college. Like I, it was then or never, like my mom knew this was her last act of really mothering me of like guiding me. Like she, I'd never taken her advice. I had never, I just fought her my whole life. And, and this was her, this was her mothering me on her deathbed. Like you have to go back to college or you're not going to finish college. And then, then you might actually turn into a worse addict than a cigarette smoker or who knows what will happen to you. But I, I can't be at peace until you're on track. And so, um, Yeah. So I had to say goodbye to my mom, knowing I'd never see her again. And it was awful. And um, 
she was like trying to lie to me saying, you know, I'm not, I'm going to get better. I'll see you. I'll see you in the summer. I really, it's, you know, I'll be here. I'll be in the garden. And we both knew she, you know, we both knew it was a lie, but like that she needed to say that, you know, instead of like, instead of admitting what was happening, that like, I really was saying goodbye to my mom, like really consciously. Um, so yeah, flew back to school as a mess. I was covered in a rash. I was, I like had eczema on my whole Eczema body. again. Right. Yeah. Oh no. Coming out of my skin. I, I went to like two days before I was leaving for college, knowing like I, what I was in for. I, I went to, I went to a doctor and like got a pap smear, which was just like awful and terrible. And like, and this female doctor, um, she was like, so what's up? And I'm like, I'm just, I'm a wreck. I'm covered in eczema. I, I can't sleep. I, my mom is dying. And she'd given me some kind of sleeping pills, probably visceral or hydroxyzine or something. So I had these sleeping pills. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't think straight. I hadn't slept in like four days. By the time I got to college, I hadn't slept in four days. I'm covered in a rash. And I remember having going to my my registration for classes because back then you had to go like register in person. Like they set up everything in the gym and you had to walk around with your card and, and get approved for all your classes. And I couldn't even like think straight. And my card was like a crazy person had filled it out. Like <laughs> it wasn't in the lines and, and I'd scratched out all these things. I mean, it just looked like a really deranged person had, had filled out this card with my, my classes on it. And then I, I walk over to my advisor and he knows, he knows my mom's dying. He knows the story. He's my academic advisor. I'm at this tiny liberal arts college where everybody knows everybody. And he had approved me like dropping out to be with my mom. And he looks at my card and he just looks up at me and I'm a mess. Like I haven't slept in four days. I have not slept in four days. I have like, you're legally insane. Yeah. I'm like completely (laughs) insane. And, um, and he looks at my card. He looks at me. He looks at my card again, looks at me again. And then he just signs my card. And, and I'm not like, it's the next person's turn. Like that was our interaction. I was like, Oh my, I have to sleep. So I, um, I ended up like taking, I taking these sleeping pills and it wasn't working and I wasn't falling asleep, but I like way overdosed on my sleeping pills, which thankfully were not something, you know, lethal. And I remember that night, like the room was just bubbling. Like I was like, oh, wow. I hope I wake up in the morning because I just took a lot of drugs. I just took a lot of drugs and I did wake up. I started school. I was in my classes. And two weeks later, I get back from my work study job in the cafeteria. And there's a sticky note on my door that says, your mom died. Please call home right away. I'm sorry. What? I know. Right. Right. That's how I dealt with it. And, um, again, it's a tiny, expensive, top tier liberal arts college with 1200 students Somebody could have come and gotten me. My my brother, who also was back in school because, you know, we had both been given the same Herculean task of having to go back to college when our mom was on her deathbed. Um, he was at a big state school and they came and got him out of class, you know, and showed him a bunch of compassion. Like, yeah, I, so I, you know, I had to get a ride to the airport. I had to fly home. My uncle picks me up at the airport and he's like, not a super emotional guy. He was my favorite uncle, but he like, was not the guy you talked to about your feelings. I remember he got me at the airport. I'm in like my big parka because I'm going to school in the Midwest. I'm like back and and he picks me up. We're waiting for my luggage. And I lean up against this wall and there's a wet paint sign I didn't see. And the whole back of my parka 
uh, gets covered in paint. And I just like look at my uncle and he takes my hand and said, Mary Lou, we're just having one of those times. <laughs> I should say. <laughs> Wait, yeah, I go home, I go to my mom's funeral. I fly back. I have to get back to college. I start really chain smoking, like really, really chain smoking. Mm. And that's when like, I really start having a hard time breathing. And I start embracing this, like, oh, I have asthma. Like I really have right. asthma and I'm in it for the drugs and I get the inhalers. And I, you know, I really start identifying with this diagnosis and then let's see what happened next. Now, really quickly, as you're kind of coming up with the, what happened next, just um, tell me, cause you had been diagnosed, you had, you had been, your mother mentioned asthma at age eight, you started smoking at 16. So you know, you came to truly identify with the asthma and be getting the drugs at, at the time of your mother's death, which was like in your early twenties, like 20 ish. I had just turned 21, 21, but 21, yeah. you didn't identify as asthmatic before you just kind of dealt with it. Like as a, you know, Oh, sometimes I can't breathe kind of thing. It was more casual, like a casual yeah. identification. Just like a like, casual chronic illness. Yeah, like, oh, yeah, I have asthma, whatever, pass the bong, you know? Like, right, it's, right. It's but then like when, not... once you were a chain smoker, then you were like, oh, it's the asthma. <laughs> the asthma. But I, yeah, and it wasn't really part of my identity. It was just mm -hmm. like, oh, yeah, I have asthma. I, you know, oh, yeah, I'm wheezing because I have asthma. Like, it wasn't that. But then after my mom died, as you can imagine, like, I am in the throes of grief. And it became it just became a bigger part of my identity. Like, oh, I am an asthmatic. I didn't quit smoking. I mean, I was definitely, I mean, I smoke it like two packs a day. I ran from my grief. Like I did not have time yeah. to grieve. I didn't understand grief. I, I felt like if I started crying, I would never come back. Like I was not getting anywhere near that infinite well of grief, you know, like I was yeah. not going to do it. I was not going to do it. And, um, so I really, I mean, I was smoking like two packs a day. I was drinking so much coffee. Like people say they're drinking a lot of coffee, but I, I had a coffee maker in my little apartment and I, I would fill the filter to the top with coffee and make a six cup pot of coffee. Then I'd put that in a pitcher and make another one. And I drank both of those every day. This. I was. Oh, drinking. I bet you were really regular between all the smoking <laughs> and the coffee. The smoking and the coffee. Yeah, I definitely was not constipated. That was not part of my identity. Um, you probably yeah, had very I, little appetite too, though. I I don't I don't even remember how I felt in my body. I, I was drinking a lot. I mean, I was drinking a lot of alcohol. I was. Um, I had a different guy in my bed every week. I was just like, what you know, like what can, how can I not feel like, how can I yes. wind it tighter? It was like, a, how can I tighten this tourniquet around my heart? So it, it doesn't start bleeding, you know, like I cannot feel it. I cannot feel it. So I was just, yeah, I was um, drinking. I was having a lot of dissatisfying one night stands. I, I, cause there certainly was no position to be like bonding with somebody at that point. Um, I was uh, smoking like crazy, drinking all that coffee and still like, getting decent grades at a top tier liberal arts college that, that required a lot of work. Like I was still getting my work done. I was, you know, and I'm, I am a over intellectualizing person just throwing myself into, into thinking as well. And yeah. And I was getting sick a lot. I was just, I really was having a hard time breathing. I was coughing all the time. 
And I remember I was living with my friends, Rachel and Suzanne, who are, you know, just some of the best friends I've ever had. And just like those kind of friends that are so formative. And I would just cough and cough and cough and cough. And finally, Rachel came into my room one night and she just sat on my bed. It was like in the morning. I guess she woke me up. I woke up and she was sitting on the bed because I'm also like, I was also like having all these waking nightmares and night, like having, um, you know, I was just having a lot of, of those, what do you call the, like those succubus? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, like I you're demons. about to fall asleep and then you have the feeling of being crushed beneath yeah. the weight of demons. Yeah, fear. Yeah. A yeah, lot of night. I was having a lot of sleep demons. I, um, I was, um, my chest is tight. And when I talk about it, it was a really oh. bad time. It was a really bad time. And yeah. So I woke up and Rachel's sitting on my bed, waiting for me to wake up. And she said, I listened to you cough all day and all night. And I can't handle being an observer to you hurting yourself like this anymore. And she's, and she used to call me like my nickname with her was Huckleberry Lou. She called me, she called me Huck all the time. She's like, Huck, you know, what can, what, what, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? And Rachel was very much a healer. She was so a much. Friend. Yeah. So much of who I am was because of my friendship with Rachel. Like she was just such a formative friend and such a good friend. And she's like, what do we need to do? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. What are you talking about? Like what, what needs to be done? Like I was running and she just started asking me about my mom and what I'd gone through. And really, um, I was just telling her the story. And at some point I was like on the floor. Like I couldn't even, I couldn't even like be on the bed anymore. I was like on the floor and I just started crying I'm telling the story and I'm just blubbering and then I'm just crying. And it's the first time I've cried really since my mom died. And I can't stop crying and I'm like shaking. I'm like crying. I'm having a seizure because I'm crying so hard. There's like snot running out of my nose. I'm like, I'm drooling everywhere. I felt like I was just a liquid mess on the floor and it just, it just kept going on. And I just remember at one point looking up at her, I'm just like racked with grief and I, I'm terrified of like, what's like, what is happening? And I said to her, like, I was like, what's happening to me? And she just reached over and like, like untangled something off my chest. And she's like, oh, you're just letting go, Huck. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, I just cried and cried and cried and cried and cried. And that helped a lot. You know, I mean, that really helped a lot. And I stopped smoking quite so much. I went down to like less than a pack a day. I got a counselor to talk to. I started getting massages. I um, got a couple of older female advisors who were willing to help mother me. Like this is so, it's like really, um, it's still right there. You know, I'm so uh, grateful yeah. to everybody who helped me. And uh, I had this women's studies advisor, bro, who really liked me. And um, she um, she would let me come take baths in her clawfoot tub and just uh. baths and just mothered me, you know, she just mothered me. And a lot of women like started stepping in to just mother me, you know, and I still like, you know, I still got coughs and colds and stuff, but then, okay. So then I was doing better. I was healing. And then I fast forward to it. I moved to Albuquerque and there's a lot more to my story. I, I got pregnant, had kind of a, an intense pregnancy. I was a single mom from like the time the pregnancy test came back and I had a lot of asthma during my pregnancy. Like I had a lot of problems breathing during my pregnancy. And I was very rigid and dogmatic. I was not going to take any drugs. And I 
I was even doing stuff like ephedra to deal with my breathing stuff, which I probably wouldn't recommend for, it's an herb. It's probably as safe as albuterol, but it's definitely not something you're supposed to recommend pregnant women take. And I, you know, I ended up having a healthy term pregnancy, which I might not have, if I'd been taking those, those drugs, I had the baby, I had a really wonderful home birth, which was really wonderful and healing. And, and then two days after I got bronchitis two days after I gave birth and was just coughing and coughing. And I like coughed out all my stitches. I was just oh. was really, really sick right after I gave birth, but I'm a single mom. I'm on welfare. Like I had to go to the welfare office the day after I gave birth or I wasn't going to have food stamps and money. And, um, and I was doing, I, you know, I had a lot of support. Like I had people who helped me a lot, but I didn't have family and I didn't have a partner. And I just started getting sick all the time, just all the time. And I was just having a really hard time breathing. And this, and I went to the doctor for help with my asthma. So I was like 24 years old. I just was having a really hard time breathing. I could barely blow into the spirometer. I couldn't like walk up a flight of stairs without using an asthma inhaler. I kept going back to the doctor every three months saying, it's not working. Like I'm not controlled that all the drugs are giving me. I'm still needing my rescue inhaler at least like two times a day. And they just kept upping my meds and upping my meds. And, and then I, at this point, I think I was, I was already apprenticing as an herbalist and I was trying to heal myself somewhat with herbs and it wasn't really working that well. I was starting to apprentice as a midwife. So I'm immersed in that world thinking, how can I actually heal this? Is like, I, like, maybe I should just start using herbs. Maybe I should do something else because these drugs aren't working, but I still was, I was afraid because I couldn't breathe. And I was afraid. I kept thinking the doctors could fix me. And my last visit with the doctor for asthma, I had this family practice doctor at UNM and I'm at, the, it's like the public health clinic. It's a really edgy place. Like there are people, you know, just a lot of, nobody there seems well. I wait like five hours. I go in for my visit and she's like, okay, we'll try this other med. There's this new promising new drug, which of course is like pulled off the market now because it didn't work and it had all these side effects that I can't, I think it was called Tylate or something like that. And the look in her eyes, I remember looking at, at how she was looking at me and thinking, she thinks I'm going to die from this. Like that's, that's the look she's giving me is she does not actually believe I'm going to get better. I have really severe asthma and she thinks I'm going to die from this and the drugs aren't getting me better. So what am I going to do? And I just kind of like, I left there, I drove away. I didn't have any faith in the drugs helping me. And I just kind of like prayed out, like, what could, like, what could help me? And then I um, went to my midwifery apprenticeship and this lovely woman, Janice Lotto, who had been the apprentice with my mentor, Barb Pepper, who had just, she had just finished her apprenticeship when I was coming in. She was going to DOM school. She was becoming an acupuncturist. And she's like, you look like you're not doing well. What's going on? I was like, I'm just like, I'm getting sicker and sicker with asthma. And she's like, hey, come to the acupuncture clinic. It's $15 for a visit. I would love to treat you in the, the student clinic. And I went and signed up for visits with her and it was amazing and miraculous. And I, I couldn't even believe how cool acupuncture was. Like it was the coolest thing that I'd ever experienced. Like, I just felt like, um, I just, I could feel the energetic meridians in my body. I could, I could feel things connecting that were supposed to be connecting. I, I would have the most amazing dreams on the table. I loved it. I had six sessions with her by the end of the, like, by the end of the sixth session, I, I had been breathing just fine, like since the second session. And I mean, it gave me like so much relief. It was, it was incredible. Like I 
I felt like it had healed my asthma and I no longer identified as having asthma after that. And I was also like taking a lot of herbs. I was in herb school, I was taking licorice, which, um, you know, in Chinese medicine, licorice, it supports the kidneys, which are, um, the kidney and adrenal gland are the same gland in, in Chinese medicine, which they probably should be in our system too. It's like the adrenal glands, a little hat on top of the kidney. Yeah. Uh, we consider them totally separate, but they're, you know, they're the same organ, the kidney. So the kidney chi was not strong enough to reach up and pull the rebellious lung chi down. Okay. So yeah. Licorice makes the, kidneys like fire, right? Kidney is water and kidneys, oh, the kidneys of terror and kidneys oh. primordial energy. We should have Kate talk about this. Cause we I'm, will have Kate. We will yeah, definitely I'm, have Kate on. I'm total like wannabe acupuncturist, but I'm not in this lifetime, but I love the system of medicine. So I loved that idea of it helps the kidneys reach up and pull the rebellious lung chi down to ground it down to get the, the full chi flowing through the lungs. So I was taking a lot of licorice. I was taking mullein. I was taking um, whorehound and, and grindelia. I was doing like just a lot of long herbs. I really started seeing a counselor again to deal with my grief, you know, so now that it had a baby and had had a natural birth at, at home, actually at, at my friend Kitty's house, who was sheltering me. Cause I was like a homeless single mother, you know, so I had, had a baby surrounded by love in my own power. And I had bonded with my baby and experienced this, you know, experienced what I had missed coming in and was just feeling deeper levels of understanding just how badly my mom and I got ripped off and how it wasn't her fault that we didn't get along. There was nothing wrong with my mother. There was nothing wrong with me. Our birth process had been so dysfunctional that we didn't have a chance. Like we just didn't have a chance. So having healed, like repaired that through a natural birth and understanding what I had missed, I was ready to go deeper with my grief and I was better at crying and I was better at, um, at feeling, I mean, honestly, what Rachel did for me, like set the template where I, I can't tell that story without expressing grief anymore. Like it's, um, she really like that Rachel really helped heal me too. Um, so yeah, from that point on, I would wheeze when I got sick. Like if I got really sick, I would have, I would have a lot of wheezing, but I no longer viewed it as asthma. I viewed it as my lungs get easily inflamed when I'm sick. And I was still sometimes using medication and I didn't feel comfortable not having an inhaler around just in case, but I don't longer identified as asthmatic that much. Like I was like, oh, you know, like I, like sometimes it would come up for me as identity, but I felt like acupuncture had healed me. And then, so every like year, every two years, I was getting like a bad respiratory infection, having a lot of wheezing, using the drugs because I was scared when I was 34. So 10 years later, I got whooping cough and oh my God, that was crazy. Like I, um, I would have so much rather had that when I was five than when I was 34, 35. Um, my kids got whooping cough and they did fine. Like they really fine. I, coughed until I vomited. I coughed until I peed on myself. I coughed until I thought I was going to die for four months and uh-huh. I just coughed and coughed and coughed. And I remember lying in bed at one point, well, cause I'd like picked up some other respiratory virus on top of this whooping cough that I've had for months and thinking like, this is going to go one of two ways. I am either going to get better or I'm going to die. Cause I cannot get any sicker than I am right now. I just, I could barely breathe. 
And I called my friend, Alyssa, Alyssa Gillespie, who's another amazing healer. And she's like, you have whooping cough. She's like, oh, Mary Lou, that, that is like such a gift. Like you have whooping cough. And I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) I don't feel feel really miserable and I don't feel blessed. And, um, and she's like, oh, you're clearing out all of the like toxicity from all the medication of suppressing the suppressive medications. You've had every respiratory infection you've ever had your whole life. And, and you, um, she's like, oh, Mary Lou, this is the key to you to healing so deeply. And then she said things like, this is probably why you're never going to get cancer. This is probably (laughs) adding, adding decades to your life because you are having to mobilize so much vitality, which will, and all that vitality you're mobilizing will be a part of you for the rest of your life. And, and she just like, you know, hypnotized me into like believing whooping cough was like the best thing that ever happened to me. um, What a gift. Yeah, totally. And and then she said in the midst of all of that, she's like, this is what's going to finally heal your asthma. Oh, and she gave me the number of a homeopath in town. um, uh, Deborah Roberts, who was married to Rob, Deborah Stevens, who was married to Robert Stevens, who ran a natural healing school here, who was a homeopath. And I had had a big block to homeopathy. Like I did not believe in homeopathy. I was a a scientist in many ways still. Homeopathy didn't make sense to me. Like it's sugar pills. Like, what do you mean energetic vibration? Like I had a lot of dogma around thinking homeopathy was bullshit basically. And, um, and I was so sick and I trusted Alyssa so much. I was willing to do anything. I went to see Deborah. She was scared. She wanted me, I could see she was scared of me. She wanted me to go to the hospital. She was like, I think you need to see a real doctor. I was really, uh. sick. I was really sick. And um, and I was like, look, I, you know, I understand I could go see a real doctor. Like I I I am not unaware that that's available to me. My understanding is they don't have a lot to give me except supportive therapy. I do not think I need oxygen right now. I do not think I need to be admitted to the hospital. I'm not quite that sick. I really want homeopathy and I want homeopathic pertussin. That's what I want because there is a special homeopathy that is the homeopathic remedy of pertussis that only certified like registered homeopaths can access. Like you have to be like a a real homeopath. Um, Mm -hmm to get it. And she gave it to me and I took that and I started feeling better right away. Like I just stopped. I, I, I was still pretty sick, you know, but I stopped coughing so much within, within like six hours of taking it. I was like, well, like I really, I'm, I'm getting better. Like, I don't even want to believe it because there's a piece of me that like, this is my final place to prove that homeopathy doesn't work, you know, or rigidity around that. And by the next morning, it was unquestionable that I was finally getting up to that point. I felt like getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And I really turned the corner literally. And then I went and I did, I did a week long body work training with actually with Deborah's husband, with Robert Stevens. I did a core synchronism training where I just got, I just got and gave body work all day long for a week. And Robert was aware I was recovering from whooping cough and he did a lot of work on me as well. And I was really starting to get better. And then um, my friend, um, Terry Simmons, who is an amazing uh, traditional midwife here in town. Um, I ran into her and, and she's like, oh, you look like hell. What's going on? I'm like, I've been so sick for four months with whooping cough. I feel like I'm finally getting better, but I still feel really fragile. And she said, so I just had all these angels, you know, who like came at this right time. Terry said, 
you should go down to truth or consequences and soak in the waters down there. They have the most amazing waters. People have come there forever to heal. I feel like truth or consequences is where you need to go. And I'd never, I love hot springs, but I'd never been to this little town. It's this little town in New Mexico that's literally called truth or consequences. So you definitely don't want to go there like with your clandestine affair, mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, like it's in a place it's where you- karmic. Yeah, it's totally karmic. It's like true, like be in your truth or you will suffer consequences, which makes it this amazing healing place. We have to like reckon with yourself and the water coming up there has not been above ground in over 10,000 years. Wow. So I went to the hot springs there with my husband, Phil, with the intention of really finally healing from this whooping cough experience I've been having. And, um, and we soaked in those waters and it was amazing. Like those waters were incredible. And, and with minerals, right? Yeah. I mean, they're just magic. Like this, mm -hmm. the energy of like this ancient water that hasn't been yes. above ground for 10,000 years and your body is there to meet it. And, um, you're not like these, these were, it's all, it, it's used to be called Geronimo Springs. Um, this is the, these were Geronimo's healing refuge springs where his band of resistors would go and heal after battle and, and get vitality and, um, get healing from the earth. Like these are amazing waters. And, and so we went and soaked there and we were just there for like two days and as we were leaving, I just felt like so good. I was, I'm like, oh, I haven't coughed yeah. in like six hours where I've been oh, wow. coughing a lot. As soon as I had that recognition, I looked in the mirror and suddenly like I was covered in eczema. I was oh. just like, and in homeopathy, oh. they, when something's dislodging, it comes out through the skin. Yeah. And I had, I had this like completely uninterrupted eczema from the top of my neck to the base of my rib cage, just huge, basically hot. where your lungs were. Yeah. This huge yeah. hot rash coming out of my lungs. Um, yeah. I knew enough that I respected homeopathy. Then I was like, okay, everything the homeopath homeopaths say is true is happening to me. So I went home and I took another dose of the homeopathic pertussin and the rash went away in a day, which has never happened to me with eczema. Like usually my eczema outbreaks last a really long time. Yeah. And I felt so much better. And then I'm going to fast forward to five years past that. So I'm in my late thirties and I run into my friend, Jill, who had been part of my play group where we all got whooping cough. And she was another oh. asthmatic. Like she was another person who identified as having asthma and we got it the worst of anybody. No, nobody else really got it. None of the other adults got it. Only Jill and I, everyone else just got the sniffles. And yes, we were all vaccinated as children. Like we all had, right. you know, everybody else in that group just got the sniffles. Jill and I got so sick. And I ran into it. And I was like, oh yeah, that was crazy. Remember when we all had whooping cough? And she said, you know, Mary Lou, I have not used my asthma inhaler since I recovered from whooping cough. And I just had this like, this light bulb, ding, 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 ding. I'm like, you know what, Jill? Neither have I. Wow. And yeah, have... that vitality mobilizing. Totally, totally. And I have been asthma free ever since. And I still sometimes would identify as an asthmatic until COVID hit and mm. the fear, the fear, the fear. And just this like, oh, if you have asthma, you're going to die of COVID. If yep. you have asthma, you're going to die of COVID. And I was resonating with that. And I expressed it to my daughter, Willow, who's another amazing healer in my life. And she's like, mama, you don't have asthma. I yeah. Like, what do you mean? I have asthma. And she's like, you need to just look at your life. Like you might've like had 
asthma in the past or symptoms of asthma in the past. She's like, but you haven't wheezed in over 15 years. You don't have asthma. So you don't need to think of yourself as someone with asthma. And that was my final layer of, of healing of really letting it go of like, no, I don't have asthma. I don't have, I am not asthmatic. I, I healed it. That's um, amazing. Yeah. It, it's, it's gone. It's, and I want other people to know it's possible. And I also know it's okay if it doesn't heal, like we don't know what's going to happen, but healing is always in the realm of possibilities. And yeah. And, and I don't believe you have to get whooping cough to do it. No, <laughs> I was always one good way. Yeah. To me, that, that was a big part of my process. Yeah. So that's my story. I love your story so much. I want to go back to the story of your pregnancy and mm. the opportunity that it offered to heal your matrilineal lineage. Because, you know, when you're describing being in your mother's womb and being, you know, in the, not only her amniotic fluid, but her fluid grief yes. and, um, yeah, just like swimming in that. And then your symptoms resurface around the time of your own pregnancy and immediately after giving birth. I mean, wow. Like it's all coming to the surface to be, um, experienced again. Right. And, uh, right. right? Like, I mean, it didn't get better, right? It didn't get better yet. It was, um, just no, got there much, to be re-experienced. It became worse. It became life yes. at that point. Um, no, and it was really bad. I mean, I, I had to, um, I, I had to call an ambulance at one point. I was intubated, you know, for my asthma. Like I, I was, I had life threatening asthma. Like I was really, really sick with asthma and, Yes, that that life threatening aspect of it came up um, after, yeah, during my like after my pregnancy. I I had a lot of stuff during my pregnancy, and then afterwards was when I was really really sick. Yeah, it just you know the layers of of processing something like um, not bonding with your mom and um, well, the yeah yeah. I mean that's that's the thing that's so wild to me, like there it didn't just threaten your life it threatened your baby's life so obviously when she was gestating it threatened her life but then if you were to die when she was just born then she would and you're a single mom i mean she could have gone into the system but she could have just wasted yeah. away she could have failed to thrive and there was this huge kind of moment in that in that unfolding where you might have repeated the pattern of not being able to feed your baby because you're, you know, uh, bronchitis. And there's just this like moment where you, you could have repeated the pattern yeah. of, of your mother and failed to ha have a moment to bond with your daughter. Right. And you didn't, you, you were able to transmute that. Not that you were able to heal it yet clearly because it, it persisted for so long but that was a major turning point in like breaking that cycle that started with your mom and it was and it was a true right? like, healing crisis yeah. similar where the asthma had to get I mean the whooping cough got to it was like I I have to shift this or I'm going to die like this is going to kill me if if I don't my choices are I can get better or I'm going to die and I didn't want to die of asthma. And again, seeing like understanding that the medical industry had nothing to offer me, right? Except a lifetime of more and more drugs. 
and seeing that look in my doctor's eye and understand, like, I just knew, like, she, she thinks I'm going to die of asthma. Which let's be clear. The drugs are, are not even palliative. Like they're weakening you. They were stimulants. They made you like strung out essentially. They may be strung out. The, um, you know, steroids make you more susceptible to infection. Exactly. You're like breathing in steroids into your lungs it, it is very counterproductive. Like it lowers your, your local immune system in your lungs. That's why we're doing it. The immune system right. reacting. That is the allopathic models understanding of what's happening in asthma. So what do we do? We put immunosuppressants directly. We have you inhale them and put them directly on the lung tissue. We are suppressing the localized immune system in the lungs. So of course, when you're on those drugs, you're getting more frequent and worse infections. Like all your infections are going into your lungs mm-hmm. because you don't have a strong localized immune system in your lungs because you're suppressing it every day. Yes. And, and yeah, that's happening. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you got that secondary infection, like, there you go. I mean, yeah. you, you have an infection already and the treatment is further lowering your immune system. Now you have another infection. And then you're wheezing like crazy because you've got this major inflammation in your lungs from this infection. And that further reinforces your belief system that you have asthma, yes. so you have weak lungs. So you have to take these medications that make your lungs weaker. And then it's, yeah, it's not getting better. It's not a path to healing. It is mm-hmm. not a path to healing. Yeah. I mean, that it was, it was another gift do or die experience of, you know, make, you've got to make this decision. Do you, are you going to um, just keep getting sicker and sicker and probably die of this? Or are you going to get better? And luckily, you know, um, because I live to live a blessed life, I'm surrounded by wonderful people. Like the, my, you know, my angels were there for me. Like I had all the right healers show up for me and I um, had the, a lot of intention to get better. I was really determined to get better because I, I not only, you know, had, I, I had a baby I had to take care right. of. And, all by yourself. Yeah, exactly. All by myself. And I was an apprentice midwife and I had, I had a calling, like I was on fire to be a midwife and I couldn't be a good midwife if I was, you know, super sick. Yeah. I love that your response was to to your to the original grief of your mother's cancer declining in front of you was to smoke more because like you said grief lives in our lungs and the it's almost like you you're again the wisdom of your body was to honor the thing that was most crying out for attention and so even though smoking is not a good way to move grief out of the lungs the attention that you're putting on the lungs by smoking is on an unconscious level answering that grief and i really relate to that because in my life every time i have gone through like a really tragic breakup or lost a you know a loved one i take up smoking and i've never be- i've never been addicted to smoking in the long term it's it's always been something that i could pretty much put down but if i'm in a state of grief the thing that i i itch Mm-hmm. for a cigarette and I need it so bad yeah I mean I've, I've heard of people like smoking mullen like rolling mm-hmm. up and smoking mullen and and that seems like a, a good a, po- a more positive way to treat grief but like that that kind of that thing that you reached for even though it was harming you was also medicinal in its way because it was like a physical honoring of the grief that was just festering in your lungs absolutely and I love tobacco. I think tobacco is such a sacred plant. I love Oh, absolutely. 
I love visiting it. I was just visiting my my friend Suzanne, who you know I lived with in college. Where I'm so blessed that we remain friends. And I'm looking at our beautiful garden, and she had these gorgeous tobacco plants with it. I mean, it's just such a beautiful plant. Um, yes, and it smells so good. It's so sacred. And tobacco, like what has tobacco always been used for? To take your prayers to the heavens. Yes. You you say you put your prayers in the tobacco and it takes it to the heavens to communicate with the ancestors. Yes. And our spirit guides and to make peace between people with very different belief systems. Mm. And anyone who's been a smoker knows that last one is very true. That yep. yeah, like sit down and have a cigarette with anybody and your friends, your friends while you're smoking that cigarette. And you know, just that that smoking subculture that I sometimes miss. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I'll work with tobacco as, you know, a ceremonial, you know, offering tobacco. I very rarely will smoke a little bit of tobacco in ceremony. Just if I'm in a ceremony that involves tobacco, I, you know, it's medicine for me and I feel okay about that. Sometimes I still use it that way, but it That's was different than two packs a day. That's just, well, let's just be two honest. Packs of, of camel lights a day. Right. It's but different. When, when I was feeling really hardcore camel on filters, you know, like those were my uh-huh, two girl. that I alternated between. Um, I rolled my own. So I, yeah. I I know that unfiltered life. Yeah. The unfiltered life. Well, and all those chemicals and everything. And it was very hard to quit. Like, I do not want to sound cavalier. Like I, it was hard for me to quit smoking. Mm-hmm. I was trying to quit smoking all the time. I tried all sorts of things. I mean, I was like in a lot of psychology classes and, and I would do these behavioral modification things where one was uh, put a rubber band around your wrist and snap it every time you feel like smoking. That didn't work very well. Another was, oh, the one that worked pretty well for me was to wrap the cigarettes in a really beautiful piece of wrapping paper and a bow and to have to undo it every time I had a cigarette as a, like a present to myself. That brought me down to like five a day. Like that actually really helped. And then my friend Joey, she was a big time smoker too. And we were doing behavioral modification where we would start to limit where we could smoke. Like I am, I can, I would tell myself, I can smoke anywhere I want except in the car. That was one of my mm-hmm. first ones because I smoked a lot in the car. Once I got comfortable with that, like it's like, okay, I don't smoke in the car anymore. It's like, okay, I can smoke anywhere or time I want except after a meal. Mm-hmm. So I have to wait at least an hour after I eat. So getting, taking those two out where it was, I wasn't dep- like, I can have as many cigarettes as I want. I just can't have them in the car and I can't have them within an hour after eating. So those were, you know, smokers like to smoke after they huge eat. Huge triggers. Yeah. yeah huge. It's then, just habituated. Yeah. Then it was like, okay, smoke anywhere I want, except in the car after a meal and at the forum, which is the place on campus where we would all hang out and smoke. And then it got to the place where I had one place on campus I was allowed to smoke that I could smoke. I would, I, I could smoke as much as I want, but I had to walk over there and do it. And that got me down to like one a day. Mm-hmm. And I stayed at one a day for a long time. And really it was getting pregnant that got me off entirely. Mm-hmm. Like I just stopped smoking. I think I smoked like three cigarettes during that pregnancy. And part was, I was no longer like physically addicted. And um, I'd done most of the work already. And two was pregnancy, man, like you, you're repulsed by cigarettes and alcoholic. Like it is primal stuff. Like you don't want poison. You don't want poison. So healing my relationship with tobacco was, was enormous. Um, and, and I still had so many lung issues, even, I mean, thank God I wasn't still smoking. Um, but then, then I was left without that grief medicine, right? Yes. Uh, right. Which yes. is probably why it got so much worse. Mm, 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 mm. 
Yes. Because I, I really was medicating my grief with the tobacco, which I think most I people know. smoking are doing. Yeah. Yeah. I really think that. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely been true for me. I loved too your story about the acute illness and, and how it moves so much vitality because I have had a lifelong allergy to cats and I, I got this cat um, <laughs> in college and I was so allergic to him and he made me, um, he, he, you know, the, uh, the constant sneezing led to a sinus infection, which led to pneumonia. And I thought the pneumonia was going to kill me. And at the end of my convalescence from pneumonia, I wasn't allergic to cats anymore. <laughs> nice. Did you suppress the pneumonia or did you like, did you take any? No, I didn't. Wow. That was before I had insurance. So um, I, I went to the like on-campus nurse and they were like, if you don't get rid of the cat, you're going to die. And I was like, if I get rid of the cat, he's going to die. So right. <laughs> I was, I was 19. So I could make idiotic calculations like yeah. that. Yeah. And you have more vitality to mobilize. Oh, but definitely. I, I really, I mean, this is something we should probably talk about in another episode, but I believe very strongly that when we suppress an acute illness, we don't get the same benefits yes. of that vitality mobilization mm-hmm. that taking drugs, like taking suppressive medications you lose, you lose a lot of that healing potential of the acute illness. Yeah, I actually, I definitely want to dive into that much deeper on another episode. And it just triggered a memory of when you were talking about the, you know, the the bronchitis and the whooping cough and, and the, the period with pertussis, I was just reminded of COVID because we talked a lot during the COVID period about scar tissue in the lungs and scarring of the lungs. And I was just thinking about, you know, the, um, you went through so many lung infections. I imagine you probably have scar tissue in your lungs. I don't, I don't believe that. I think that that someone with my history would be likely to have scar tissue in their lungs. Right. If that's the, if that's a thing. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. That's um, kind of what I'm getting at. Cause like, you're totally, you're, you don't have these bouts of asthma anymore. You don't yeah. have chronic lung um, infections the way you did when you were a little girl. No, no, I don't. And I, um, I, my, my illnesses don't go into my lungs anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I mean, I've had COVID three times and I didn't, I mean, I guess the last time I had it, I did cough a lot, but I didn't wheeze. I haven't, I haven't, had a wheezing illness in a really long time. I haven't had an illness where I felt like I couldn't breathe, which used to be my baseline. If I was sick, I was on my way to feeling like I yes. And I tried to have so much compassion for that fear during COVID of like, oh, that yes, that is a scary thing. Not being able to breathe is so scary. So scary. And just what an awful way to die to feel like you can't breathe. And I have felt that so many times in my life from some of my first memories of like, I feel like I can't breathe. And, and I was born, but I couldn't breathe when I was born because I was, I was drugged. Um, so it's very primal for me, like mm-hmm. not being yes. able to breathe. Yeah. Yeah. I know when, when I, I had brought up German new medicine earlier in the context of allergies. And I was thinking about that again, because your story of your, of your first breath being forced, you know, in German new medicine, asthma is, 
triggered by a death fright conflict. So the the not being able to breathe is an expression of the fear that you won't be able to breathe, that you're dying. Right. right? There we go. That was pretty Yeah. And you literally were like on you could you could have died and and the 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 uh, you know the the air was literally not coming into your lungs. You know, well, during- I, and I might have been born clinically dead. Like I don't know, yeah. I don't have the records, but my mother you were really good birthers in my family. Like we're just okay. really good at giving birth. And um, my mom's first birth um, was, you know, was under general anesthesia, but I think it was like, like six or seven hours long. I was her second baby a year after her first birth. A year. Like she was going fast. Like, you know, I, I mean, I've, I inherited my body from my mother. I've, I've given birth twice and I've been in labor less than 10 hours my whole mm-hmm. life. My daughters had very efficient births. We're just really good at giving birth in my yeah. life. Which wow. is a blessing. And I think wow. a lot of women, I think a lot of women are from a line of women who are really giving birth, good at giving birth. I don't think that's abnormal, mm-hmm. but what it is true is my mom was having her second baby in, she had just given birth like a, a year before she was going fast and furious. She was given anesthesia a few minutes before I was born. So uh. I probably was born needing a full resuscitation. I was probably born without a heart rate and without any respiratory effort. So I, oh. I was most likely fully resuscitated at my birth. Yeah, that is really, really an intense way to come into this world. And that there, the system's aversion to natural birth at the time that they would treat, like we we have to do this. We have, like the baby's coming out, but we gotta get, we gotta get the anesthesia into you because you can't be conscious for your birth. Women were told it was, um, it would damage them to be conscious for their births. They, you know, they didn't, and you know, they were separated from their family. They, my, my dad was like, was given drink coupons for the right. across, across the street. Don't bother being yeah, here. Don't like get out of here, go have some drinks. Um, we'll call you when, you know, when everybody's cleaned up. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's crazy. Right. Um, that that was that was saying no one questioned it and that we can look at that and be like oh that's crazy but still people can't look at our current medical protocols and understand that you know in a few decades we're going to view so much of this as crazy like we're always doing crazy stuff but that was the paradigm at the time so yeah I was born probably I mean probably was born clinically dead like I probably didn't have much going on um but but because as a baby and I, it was only a couple minutes into it, they got me going, you know, and mm-hmm. um, I didn't need a ventilator or anything like that. I just needed to, I just, they, my, the story for that my mom understood from asking the nurses was I, you know, I just needed to like be resuscitated and then I was okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. You also have a, uh... Saturn in a in a square to your natal moon and I just yeah. think about like the constraint put on your mother yeah. in that story like the restrictions on your mother in her birth and then the restrictions on the relationship with your mother for the rest of your life yeah until until my mother died and, yeah and that if my mother had not given me the gift of dying when when I was 21 I would still be fighting with my mother Oh my gosh. And that is a really hard piece of my grief process that my mother's death was such a liberation for me that we could finally bond and that I could stop reacting to her 
And it was not that so much to my brother and sister who really bonded well with my mother and had these really wonderful relationships with my mom. Um, it was a much more tragic, I mean, it's tragic for me, but it was also this enormous gift. Like I could not have become a healthy person in my twenties if my mother hadn't died when I was 21. And in hindsight, that that's the truth of my story. And because we had such a, a dysfunctional reactive relationship, I would have just been reacting to her all the time. Um, everything happened, you know, in hindsight, I believe in my life, everything makes sense. And I'm not glad or happy. My mom died. I just recognize the gift of it in the mythic story that is my life absolutely it really makes sense and you know when you say that you would still be fighting I wonder if that's actually true because you are such a healer and you're so oriented toward evolution but I also recognize the wisdom I mean you know your life and so that that you know receptivity to the gift of her death is allows it to be a blessing and allows it to be the motivation for you to go back to school and to become the type of mother that your mother didn't have the chance to be. Right. And I don't know. I mean, I don't know who I would be if I had not been tasked with these literally like Herculean efforts of, of you, um, you, have to do your mother's hospice care at 20 you have to go back to college before your mom has actually died and um and then also to be a single mother you know was a very herculean thing to um apprentice as a midwife as a single mother these things that don't seem humanly possible that were required of me in my story i don't know who i would be and I, i don't regret any of it and um yeah it did it did temper me so yeah, I, I'm really grateful to my mother. I have a lot of love for my mother. I really try to remember to invoke my mother's yes. intercession as a saint, you know, that my, yes. my mother is, um, is uh, you know, still an ally for me, like in the, in the ancestral realm. Um, it's hard because we didn't bond well that I don't, I didn't have a strong personal relationship with my mother. So most of, of, like, I really would have liked to know my mother better than yes. I did. Oh, yeah. Yes. I do have to give my mother like huge credit that she, she still really wanted a natural birth. And when she got pregnant with my brother, my mom was a nurse. She was savvy. She wanted natural birth. She knew this little town in Pennsylvania, they were not doing natural births there. That was not, it wasn't like the big city where that Lamaze stuff was happening. You couldn't do that there. It was not allowed. When she went into labor with my brother, she didn't tell my dad and she asked him to take her out to dinner and <gasps> he ate and ate and ate. And then she was like, you got to get to the hospital. I'm, you know, I'm like going to have the baby soon. And she, um, when they came out she was like, you can't give me anesthesia. My stomach is so full. Yes. Natural birth oh, with my brother. Oh, yeah. She, she planned it that way. Like, I don't know how long she planned it, but I have a feeling yeah. she was planning that for a while. She's a fucking hero. Yeah, she yes. got a natural birth. She got a natural birth. You know, she got an unmedicated birth with my brother because of it. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah, I admire her. You know, I also am curious because you said that she had melanoma, right? And it had spread yes. throughout her body. I mean, melanoma is a it's a skin cancer, right? Yes. Yeah. And you had eczema. So not that eczema is in uh, on par with melanoma, but I'm 
making a comparison in the expression because we were talking about how disease rises to the surface of the skin when it's ready to be healed. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if the grief that she was carrying, I know that she lost her sister. I imagine that there were other um, big tragedies in her life, just based on what little I know about your family background. But I wonder if that, uh, you know, that was her, the, the rising to the surface of her healing crisis. Yeah, it's hard to know what my mom's, like what, how she would put together mm-hmm. her story as a mythic journey. But I'll tell yeah. you one really cool thing is um, my mom uh, and my dad, they met each other in, um, they were both close to 40. They were in their late thirties and they, they had both had these um, really interesting lives. So my mom had been in the convent for a very long time. She had been a nun and she left the convent because she wanted to have children in a family. My dad had been in a circus, like traveling around the circus. That's right. Mom was in the convent. My dad was in the circus. My dad had left the circus and was doing other things. He was actually a chick sexer at a time. He was like a professional chicken sexer. He had this like really kind of itinerant wildlife. Um, And they had a mutual friend who just thought they'd get along. Even though my mom was very devout Catholic, my dad was kind of this unchurched guy. Um, my dad had had a wild past. My mom had spent her whole youth in a convent and they met each other and they fell in love. Like the first time they met each other, they fell in love. And within like a few weeks, they decided to get married because they're in their late thirties. They both want a family. It's um, a different time. Like there were not long courtships there, you know, mm-hmm. like if you wanted a family, you, you got married and get started. Wanted- and honestly, in my lineage, especially my mom's, like, if you wanted to have sex, you got married, right? So uh-huh. if you were really into someone, you get married. And um, and so they announced they were getting married. And the day after, or like within a week after getting engaged, my mom was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. Wow. And, um, and she didn't have any insurance. And my dad, who was so in love with her, he paid for all her treatment. She had surgery. She had her thyroid removed. And she woke up from surgery and she said to him, um, you probably don't want to marry me. I'm, I'm probably oh. not going to live very long. And, um, and my dad said to her, even if I just have one day with you, I want to marry you. Oh, that is and so romantic. It is so romantic. They oh. loved each other so much. They were so in love. And my mom's story was she prayed, she prayed to, to Jesus and to, Mary and Joseph and you know she she prayed to God that she could have children and see them all graduate from high school oh. and she died of cancer when my brother her youngest was a, a freshman in college wow god answers prayers god answers prayers she probably should have asked for you know maybe to see a her grandchildren or something like that yeah. but um but yeah i mean she it was a miracle so my mom was sick like my we were very aware that my mom my mom had a lot of cancers, you know, and then it was the colon cancer and the melanoma that one of those is what metastasized. But we, we grew up with a sick mom. Like she, um, I mean, she wasn't looking physically sick, but she, she felt like her days were numbered her whole, our, our whole time together. And we, we picked up, Wow. but it is such a beautiful, like she was living on borrowed time. She felt that way. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and it was also like like the notebook or something like this love story. Yes. My parents had this love story that that was a big part of our family story that they yeah. they loved each other and that they, you know, 
they like had this pack together that they, you know, like the, she had, she had survived so they could have this family together. And yeah, mm-hmm. anyway, that's more of I my- love your mother. Oh, yeah. I love your father too. I just am so happy they found each other. I, I'm really glad they found <laughs> each other too. Yeah. And this you is are. what happens. Like this is what happens when um, a nun and a guy who's been in the circus have kids. <laughs> Mary Lou happens. Totally. Get something like this. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. She so. seems so serious and yet secretly she is a jester. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you know, just pious and irreverent and uh-huh. pious and, and irreverent. Yes, absolutely. That is you so much. So that's my story. Do you feel complete? I feel complete. There are more things I'd love to talk about too, that just because like in, in future episodes, I absolutely want to talk about healing from, um, adenomyosis and perimenopausal flooding, because I think that's something that we don't get enough stories of, but for the purpose of this, this episode, I think this, you know, that's my story that, um, I healed. I no longer have asthma. I do not identify as having asthma. I, um, that's no longer part of who I am. You're free. I'm free from that. Yeah. I, I, I totally want to validate what you're saying too, because we're going to have so many episodes, Mary Lou. And I was editing the second episode today, which was my story. And I was like, gosh, I can't believe I got through an entire episode about my healing journey and never mentioned that I took up strength training and how it completely and radically accelerated my healing journey. Didn't mm-hmm. even mention it. So yeah, we're going to have to, we're going to have to dive deep into a lot of issues, but how could you possibly tell, like you said, when we began this, you know, you've been healing your whole life. Mm -hmm. So this is just one chapter in that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to my story. And um, I do want to thank my, my mom, my, um, Mm -hmm. you know, my patron saint, my Billy here, you know, my mom's name was um, Dorothy Carmel Carol Singleton she was uh her her birth name was carol her irish name and um and uh dorothy and then carmel is named after our lady of mount carmel who was um a very blessed apparition of the of the divine mother yes yes and it doesn't it mean city of god too i think or am i I something like that l is god anyway i I love your story so much, Mary Lou. Thank you so much for sharing it and being so vulnerable and honest with us. Thank you, Jocelyn. So I'll just say to wrap up once again, thank you to our audience for listening. And we hope that you will subscribe to our Substack to stay abreast of all of our latest updates and our latest up- episodes as they drop. We do have a paid option. We would really love your support. It helps to maintain the energy that we need to go through the the recording and editing and advertising of this podcast and uh so we would really appreciate your sub- su- support whether you're a free subscriber or on our paid tier and i also want to say once again that if you have a story of healing then we would really love for you to get in touch with us our email is howihealedpodcast at gmail.com you can reach us on instagram twitter threads uh notes facebook um and we'll put all those handles in the notes so get in touch (laughs) thank you